0: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy and the studios of WPSU on the campus of
1: Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works.
0: Chris, we have a special guest
1: here. Yet again. <laughs> just a, We should just like say special, a, a level nine special or something. I don't know. Anyway. So, uh, and a friend of yours. Yeah, yeah. Uh, terrific uh, human being as well as an astute observe, uh, observer of American politics. Uh, E.J. Dion is uh, a, a columnist for the Washington Post. He's got a position in government government studies at the Brookings Institution, and is a professor of uh, public policy at Georgetown. So, in uh, he's uh, a real slacker when it comes to <laughs> to work. But uh, in any case, uh, yeah, we were, you
0: read his columns, you just know he's really well read. Right.
1: And, uh, right. Now, I, he's I, you know he's also in the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I mean, he's a you know bona fide intellectual in term, yeah. and, and in addition to being a a wonderful human being. So, uh, we're lucky to have him on campus, and we're, we're lucky to have him uh, interviewed for the podcast. Yeah, you know, he's so
0: prolific; it's hard to know where to start exactly. And sort of talking about uh, talking about what he brings to the table today.
1: Right. I mean, he is uniquely qualified both to talk about kind of the, uh, the you know the the state of American politics. On a day-to-day basis, which is what he does with his column, but you know he also writes books and um, and has a much more informed and thoughtful and historically grounded analysis of kind of where politics is, where our democracy is, and whether it's whether it's tending.
0: Right, getting away from the horse race. He's
1: very good at the horse race. Yeah, getting getting yeah. away
0: from the horse race. Uh He really brings a uh, a learned and valuable perspective on thinking about the state of American democracy. Right. And he's concerned about the American state of democracy. Absolutely. So one thing he's been writing about both in his uh, recent book and in in recent columns that I find uh, really quite interesting is this idea of if we accept that there's been damage done to our democracy – over the last several years. And actually, he would argue that it's a lot more than the last several sure, years. Sure,
1: culminating in Trump. But culminating th-
0: yeah. in Trump. But, you know, uh, much along the lines that his uh, recent co-authors, uh, Ornstein and... Tom Mann. Uh, and Tom Mann have been, been arguing. Uh, he, he's asking the next question, which we have heard less about, and that is, uh, how do we restore mm-hmm. our democracy? What do we do to get it back?
1: Right. And, and uh, you know, how do we move... Or how do we mobilize or take advantage of the fact that uh, because of this climate and in reaction to what Trump has done, uh, there is more interest and more activism in politics uh, right now than there has been for for decades. So, yeah, that's enough, I think, for us to uh, set the table for, for E.J. and Jenna. So let's let's bring them in.
0: OK.
2: This is Jenna Spinelli here today with E.J. Dion. E.J., thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. What a
3: joy to be with you. Thanks.
2: So, E.J., you have kind of a a unique vantage point uh, in that you study and comment on it and write about both the day-to-day kind of horse race of politics and government and also the longer trends of of history and democracy. So I'd like to, to talk with you today about a couple of the places where those two things intersect. Um, starting with the, the months leading up to the 2018 midterms, uh, you and your co authors, um, Tom
3: Mann and Norm uh, Arnstein. Arnstein, yeah,
2: in uh, One Nation After Trump, um, wrote that you called for a partisan response to achieve the nonpartisan goal of returning a sense of legitimacy to our politics. So, can you tell us uh, what, what you meant by that and, and whether you think it's, it's been successful since the midterms?
3: I think it's been partially successful. Our point was that Trump had done something to our politics that was very dangerous and needed to be reversed. And given that the Republican Party had chosen almost to a person, with a couple of exceptions uh, in Congress, to support Trump, um, the only way to hit back to create any sense of accountability was to give at least one House of Congress to the Democrats. You know, we made the point that way because there are a lot of people out there who aren't necessarily partisan Democrats, who aren't necessarily liberals or lefties, um, who believe that there are abuses here that need to be checked uh, and a threat to democracy that needs to be reversed. Um, And that's exactly what happened. And I I was struck that the margin in the election of nearly 10 million votes for the Democrats in House race, I think it was 97 Um, Compare that to Hillary Clinton's popular vote margin of 2.9 million. That is a big shift in the country in two years so that I think it was the country sending a message. And yes, the Republicans gained some some Senate seats, but those were within their base where they suffered were swing areas, including areas. Um, that the Democrats hadn't won in in quite some time.
2: Right. So is is that the the strategy or or the approach that should continue in into twenty twenty?
3: Right. Well, I I think there is. Uh, my, my view is that the Republican Party um, has moved to a point where it needs a real rebuke in order to look inside itself and say, "Is this where we want to continue to be?" I always say that my dirty little secret in life is that I was a teenage liberal Republican. And I think it's a dirty little secret because I think the most boring thing you can be as a teenager is a liberal Republican. Um, I always say that because I have become so critical of the Republican Party and feel that way that I like to underscore, you know, this does not come from a kind of bigotry. It comes from or or sheer partisanship, although there's actually a case for partisanship. We can talk about that Um but it, it comes from a, a, you know, a deep disappointment that a party that gave us all sorts of people who gave us the civil rights laws, who gave us the Voting Rights Act, are now suddenly in a position where they're engaged in voter suppression. This is a kind of complete reversal of the old party of Lincoln, but more recently – of the party uh, the pre-goldwater party of the 1960s.
2: Mm-hmm. So do do you see any signs that that might change heading in, into 2020 and if not what happens to the the people who who are conservative but don't maybe align with where the the uh, Republican party is is currently?
3: Well I don't it, I think there are still a lot of conservatives who made a deal that they think is still worth making on behalf of low taxes, deregulation, and court appointments. And, you know, we forget, we talk so much uh, about the role of blue-collar whites, uh, particularly blue-collar white men in electing Trump, that we forget his real base was conservative Republicans. You know, (laughs) college-educated white men voted 59%. Uh, for Donald Trump, we never talk about them, uh, partly because the uh, you know the defection. I think of them as Trump Democrats. The defection of angry folks, who many of whom belong to unions, was critical in changing states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and also Ohio. Um, but we forget that that Trump base is still there. But I think for people, I think the Democratic coalition is now now ranges. From democratic socialists all the way over to people who would have been moderate or liberal Republicans in another time. If you look at some of the districts um, that the um, uh, that the Democrats won around suburban Philly, in New Jersey, uh, in California, all over the country. Um, these districts that would happily, 30 or 40 years ago, have sent a moderate Republican to the House are now sending Democrats. And so I think that creates a really interesting argument inside the Democratic Party because um, there is, I think, some common purpose there, but there are very different not only um, viewpoints, but backgrounds, you know, uh, you know uh, a sort of pre-politics to these arguments.
2: Yeah. And we've we've talked on this show before uh, with, with Lara Putnam, who has, as you know, I think did some work with, with Theta Scotchpole about the kind of rise of, of grassroots organizing. So that's also been been kind of interesting to see and, and also to see, you know, how that will continue to change moving toward 2020 because as you said there we have this whole range of of democrats will they kind of coalesce around one particular ideology or, or will they kind of you know what 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 might become of that it'll be interesting to see
3: you know i i joke sometimes that if trump doesn't destroy our democracy he might help save it because not from his intention but the amount of organizing in places and among people who had not been heavily involved in political organizing before is astonishing The research by Theda, Scotchpole and Lara and my Brookings colleague, Vanessa Williamson, is really fascinating because it shows that people who had not been involved in politics before in places that had never seen Democratic or, you know, left of center, center left organizing before have suddenly leapt into politics. You saw that early on. Uh, around the repeal of the affordable care act where i think a lot of republican members of congress in very republican districts were shocked to see 3 or 400 people show up at town meetings but i think as much the people who showed up were shocked to see how many of their neighbors and neighbors actually agreed with them on politics and so i think that when you combine and theta has made this point that when you combine the new engagement during the Tea Party years and now the new engagement during the Trump years, you have a degree of political participation we have not seen in a long time in our country. And um, in the long run, I think that would be, could be uh, very good for our democracy because a lot of these folks are not – they have strong views, but they're not ideologues. Uh, they really care about the state of public life and what bothers them about Trump – Um, is policy, yes, in many cases, um, but also a sense that he is autocratic, uh, and that he is sort of beneath the dignity of a democratic country. That's a lot of these folks are women. A lot of them come out of the mainline Protestant churches. It's a really fascinating movement.
2: Yeah. And in, in One Nation after Trump, you also called for, for making America empathetic again. And I, I'm wondering in the year and a half or so since that book has come out, if you've seen any signs to signal that that, that might be happening.
3: You've actually seen it, you will go back to the number of people who rushed to the airports uh, over uh, the Muslim ban and people, um, you know, who may not have met a Muslim in their life said, wait a minute, this isn't who we are. Or you look at the reaction uh, to the kids being taken away from their parents at the border. And I also think on the other side of politics, um, and you're hearing it in the presidential campaign, People are much more aware now than they used to be, uh, even though they should have been, of the suffering in um, factory towns uh, all over the industrial belt from, you know, from here in Pennsylvania uh, all the way west. And I think that there wasn't that sense of, my God, there are our fellow Americans who are going through a lot that people in the more affluent areas didn't see. So I think we've taken some steps uh, forward but we have a lot of work to do that line I, I, that the, the sort of pages in the book were initially inspired by a, an event I did with David Brooks who I'm on NPR with a lot and is my old friend um, before the uh, one of the Republican debates and um, I just blurted out uh, to the crowd you know if I had a hat my hat would say let's make make America empathetic again and he's a very nice man in the crowd came up to me and said I love that uh, you'll hear from me. And three weeks later, I had a perfect replica of the Trump hat that said, make America oh. empathetic again. So I always loved that man for uh, memorializing it. It looked too much like the Trump hat for me to wear, but I treasure it.
2: Yeah. So what what can people do to, to develop that sense of empathy or to, to try to make some of those, those strides in that direction?
3: Your own Chris Beam gave a TED Talk in which he said we needed uh, – Uh, people um, needed to do three things. They needed to tell the truth. They needed to engage in democratic humility, which is his wonderful uh, concept about understanding the limits, even of your own point of view and the way it's conditioned by where you come from and also join an organization. I've been thinking about that and in a funny way, join two organizations, join one organization to further your political goals, to be engaged, join another organization that has nothing to do with politics, where you might, uh, of the nature of things, encounter uh, folks who uh, may have different politics. I think one of the terrible things about the Trump age is that the division is so deep that friends who disagree about politics don't even talk about politics anymore because they're afraid of busting the friendship. I had a dear, dear uh, Republican uncle um, who passed away some years ago. He and I spent 35 or 40 years arguing about politics, and it was fun for us, and we could really get heated. You could tell how badly we were divided as a country by how heated he and I got. I swear if he were around today, I'm not sure we could do it, and that sort of pains me, uh, because if you can't even argue about politics anymore, um, uh, we have a problem. So I think... The other thing is to model a different kind of arguing uh, with people. I am very fond of um, uh, Christopher Lash's great essay, The Lost Out of Argument, where he argued in real argument as opposed to just people yelling at each other. You have to enter imaginatively into the ideas of your opponent, if only to try to refute them. But in the process, you put your own ideas at risk. We don't have arguments where anybody puts anything at risk anymore, and we are going to figure out how to do that again.
2: Uh, yeah, and um, why do you think that is? Why do you think it's it's so hard for people to have constructive arguments?
3: Well, I think uh, my friend Mike Tomaski writes about this some in his uh, his new book, um, if uh, if we can keep it. Um, I think some of it is our allegiances are all aligned together in a package. So people's political commitments, people's party commitments are aligned with their ideological commitments, are often aligned with their religious commitments. That includes people who are religious or secular, um, combined with where they live, uh, you know, the, uh, the big sort argument. And so, so many things combine in one, and party has come to stand for a whole series of things, My friend um, Mike Gerson, the Washington Post columnist, has a great column today where, you know, soteriology, uh, which is sort of a wonderfully abstract word about salvation, has been replaced on the right with eschatology. But he argues that, you know, politics has become religion for so yeah. many people.
2: So it does seem like the left and the right are both kind of united around this idea of bringing back civil society. We've, we've been just, just been talking about some of that, the whole kind of join something mentality. Um, you know, you guys talk about it in One Nation After Trump. Ben Sass talks about it in, in his new book. Um, I, I'm wondering that, though, a lot of these appeals seem to be backward looking. So if only we could get more people to join the PTA or, you know, whatever whatever the, the group is. I'm wondering how that squares with, like, our... Technology landscape today. You know how you kind of make civil society work given some of the given the the world we we live in today.
3: Well, two things about that. One on civil society, I am a big fan of it. I think we people need uh, ways in which they can get together face to face and do things together. You know, sports teams are part of that. By the way, there is enormous life in civil society when ki- where kids' sports are concerned, even if sometimes people can be nasty in kids' sports, but usually not. Uh, the um, On the other hand, the, the, there's a part of the civil society argument that I really do worry about um, with two parts. One is the one you point to, which is we can't just be nostalgic, and I want to talk about that. But the other um, is that it acts as if there's something magical and that, well, gee, civil society disappeared, and what do we do about it? How about Uh, The collapse of the industrial economy in many towns across the industrial belt has helped bring about the collapse of civil society. What I want to tell my conservative friends is I'm with you. I want a stronger civil society. But you guys have to acknowledge the cost of inequality and the cost of economic collapse uh, in many cases, because you can't support a Rotary Club without local businesses and you can't support unions uh, without jobs. And you can't uh, support any of these organizations if the economics of a place are hollowed out. And so I think that's one side of it. And then you pointed to the nostalgic uh, um, aspect of it. I had a hope uh, really during the 08 Obama campaign, and I haven't completely lost that hope, that um, – New technology can also lead to face-to-face contact. You know, so often we see it, and maybe so often it is, an alternative to people meeting face-to-face. We were talking before this podcast about people don't even have to speak to a human when they order things. But in the Obama campaign, when you went back to look at their primitive compared to you know the era we're in now— Contacts online, um, they always ended in a meeting somewhere, or they always ended in a door knock. Um, and so maybe we should turn a technology that we see as undercutting civil society to the work of trying to reignite it. Because if nothing else, um, the online world ought to be very compatible with organizing, conducive to organizing. All right.
2: So the other, as all of this, this organizing is going on, there's also been. Some talk about policy changes that might help to to make America more small D democratic. Um, there's there's two of those ideas I, I want to get your thoughts on um, quickly here as we start to wrap up. Um, the the first is the the national popular vote interstate compact, which needs a different name. I think they need to I, I, I spend some money yeah. on some marketing for that. But um... the let the
3: people <laughs> decide initiative.
2: <laughs> um, so it seems like that's that's picking up steam. Uh, I know it just just passed in in Colorado and uh, it's on the, the, the governor's desk as we record it in, in New Mexico and Delaware. So can you give us the 30,000-foot overview of, of what that is and, and whether you think it's it's likely to, to be in effect by, by 2020?
3: Yeah, two quick things. We have a problem in our country that's going to keep growing with the Electoral College. Um, we have had just since two thousand two two elections where the Electoral College went against the popular vote. In the last election, a popular vote margin of 2.9 million, which is a lot of people. It wasn't a huge margin, but it's still a significant margin for Clinton. Uh, And yet Trump won the Electoral College. And, of course, Bush won the Electoral College in 2000 in an election with all kinds of issues uh, down in Florida. Um, The way in which population is getting concentrated in big states uh, the overrepresentation of low-population states in the Electoral College will get even greater. Um, studies show that 70% of us will live in 15 states, which by the way means 70% of the population will have 30 senators. This is also a problem for democracy, and you can't change the Senate very easily under the Constitution. Um the popular vote initiative the the let we'll now rename it let the people decide initiative basically encourages legislatures since the legislature can pledge the electors under the constitution um, to have legislatures vote to pledge their state's votes to the winner of the popular vote. And that this that w- they would only take effect when a majority of states make that commitment. Now, if that ever happens, I'm sure it'll go to court. But I think it's creating pressure. And the f- the reason they're doing it this way is smaller states probably won't ratify an amendment that will undercut their clout in the Electoral uh, College. This, by the way, also is good because the Electoral College, as it stands, encourages candidates to campaign in at most 10 states. Um, You know, and here in Pennsylvania, where we're sitting, it's good for Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania is seen as a swing state. But there are so many states that are either strongly Republican or strongly Democratic and never see a candidate after the primaries. Um, So I think it's uh, I think it's important that we have this discussion. I would prefer it with an instant runoff system um, where, you know, people rank choice the candidates to guarantee that it's not only the winner of the popular vote, but the winner of. Of the the preference of a majority of the country.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, the So we could have a whole other show just on that. Uh, I, but <laughs>
3: You probably will.
2: Yeah, 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 let's hope so. I hope so. Um, so the other thing I know that you've done some work in is the idea of, of universal voting, which was uh, comes from Australia. Um, you, I've heard you describe it as almost like a, a parking ticket or, you know, some model for, for voting. So so tell us about that and, and what your work is in that area.
3: Yeah, so... Um, um, Australia has uh, what's uh, what you might call compulsory attendance at the polls. It's important to put it that way because people don't have to cast a vote if they don't want to. They can draw Mickey Mouse or anyone else on their ballot. They can throw their ballot in the trash. They just have to show up. Um, and uh, I'm working on an initiative with uh, Miles Rappaport up at the Ash Center at Harvard on this where we're trying to see what would this look like if we did it in the United States. Now my Friend um, Bill Galston and I, who wrote a paper on this, uh, uh, chose universal voting, partly obviously because Americans don't like the word compulsory, but partly also to say, look, if we can't get to the Australian system, which, by the way, works very well, um, we would still like to get closer to the point where almost all Americans vote. So this is as much about tearing down the barriers to voting um, as it is to creating this system of requiring people to vote. In Australia, it's a, the cost of the fine is somewhere around, if I remember correctly, around 20 bucks, 25 bucks. It's varied a little, but it's not an onerous uh, fine. Um, but it's just a message. And most Australians obey the law. And our theory is if you can ask people to serve on juries, um, if you can ask people, uh, for goodness sake, to uh, potentially give their lives in war, then asking people to vote is not a uh, an over ask for civic life, but finally it reverses the role of local officials. They can't suppress the vote anymore. Their job is to help make it as easy as possible for all the people in the country to do their civic duty and to obey the law and so I'm most interested in this because I want to stop any efforts locally to prevent people from voting or making it harder for people to vote. Yeah.
2: So would this also have to come in conjunction with with some other reforms because if you think about it just as like we're going to have a 20 or 25 dollar fine for people who don't vote it seems like that might impact the people who are disenfranchised or who can't vote. Oh, amen. Can no make that's exactly right. Yeah. In
3: fact um, again, every reform that you would want, like um, you know election day, uh, registration, automatic registration, you know, ending the ID laws, all the reforms you'd want to put in place to make it easier to vote have to be preconditions of this. Um, and so if we got all of those without the compulsory vote, I would be pretty happy uh, because I'd like us to move in that direction. There was a study that just came out within the last couple of days uh, that showed that all of these various changes, a lot of states – we've talked a lot about the states where voter suppression measures have passed. A lot of states have passed uh, laws uh, to increase access to the ballot, and they've actually worked. They've increased turnout. They've increased registration. Um, So I see this as a way of moving in that direction – and then we can have a debate over whether we go to the Australian system um, and sort of say, you know, citizens have the privilege of voting, but they have the right to vote, and it's also an obligation to vote.
2: So, E.J., we're going to end, as we always do, with our four Mood of the Nation poll questions. So, thinking specifically about American politics, what makes you angry?
3: You know, I think what makes me angry is just we can't talk about um, economic inequality in ways that encompass African-Americans in the inner city, white working class voters in Erie, Pennsylvania, or uh, all, you know, or, Reading, or all other kinds of uh, blue collar areas, and that the result is that injustices continue to sit there against very different kinds of Americans who somehow um, I think should be, find themselves on the same side of a lot of
2: questions. And uh, what makes you proud?
3: Um, I'm proud that we're still hanging on to our democracy. I you know, I'm proud that over our history we have on balance gotten better rather than worse even though we've had moments of setback. I love the old Churchillite everybody quotes Americans always do the right thing after first exhausting all the other possibilities and I think we move forward as a country in the end.
2: What makes you worry?
3: Um The president makes me worry Uh, a kind of authoritarian, autocratic sense he sometimes conveys. Uh, Just last week uh, from when we're talking, um, he talked about having the military on his side, the police on his side, the bikers Bikers, on his side. What does that say about um, his attitude toward democracy? Is he thinking about Chile in 1973 or Spain in 1930? This really worries me.
2: Finally, what gives you hope?
3: Uh, the incredible activism all across the country, all across age groups, uh, the new generation gives me a lot of hope, not just because I have kids in that generation, uh, but also I teach students in that generation. Um, and, uh, but the activism in every part of our country uh, tells me that uh, not only is democracy not dead, but people, citizens, see the ways in which democracy gives them openings to change the country.
2: We will leave it there, EJ Dion. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you.
0: Well, we're back, and uh, a lot of interesting material in that interview. Uh, one thing that really struck me, uh, in part because of how well it uh, coincides with findings in our mood of the nation poll, is uh, what he had to say about empathy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and one thing that we've been finding, and we're not we're not alone in in finding this, is just you know, just such antagonism and antipathy uh, between people of one party and the other.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the idea that, um, you know, we can't even talk about these things anymore. And I think everyone has that experience, right? That, that you know, um, it used to be that you could, you know, have these good-natured arguments, but now these arguments get uh, heated and personal so quickly that people just don't talk about
0: it. Yeah, a really interesting observation he made that people will, people will talk less about politics with people they disagree with because mm-hmm. of how quickly unpleasant. Right. It, it now becomes. And I mean, I love the whole choice of this word empathy here because on the one hand, it's obviously meant as a knock against the president, who's often accused of sort of lacking empathy. Uh, but but it's also a knock on all of us for the way that we are, in effect, viewing the other side.
1: I suppose that's true. I mean, I also think it is, um, you know, a, an appeal to our better natures, right? The better angels of our nature. And, and the idea that... Um, the way it is now is not the way that it has always been, nor is it the way that it has to be.
0: No, no. Right? He makes a really neat point in there about how it uh, doesn't elaborate to a huge extent, but about how this, this notion of sorting out and about how party ID has uh, now come to encompass uh, much more of one, one's identity. Because it lines up so well with social groups, with the kinds of communities that you live in, with the kinds of TV that you watch, the kind of stores that you shop at. Entertainment,
1: cars. Right. I mean, it it just goes all the way down.
0: So being a Democrat and being a Republican now is more than simply a party label. It says something about who you and the people you are are, uh, in community with uh, or, or people that you hang
1: out with. Our uh, life and and conversely and uh, uh, negatively what y- how you view the people who are different from you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And this is this is, uh, you know, this idea of how we've kind of sorted along these identity identity lines is is really pretty critical because this is going to
1: be a hard thing to break. Everyone's dissatisfied with democracy. Join an organization that makes democracy better in the way you want it to be better. But in addition to that, join an organization where people are not all the same, where people don't have the same point of view, where you get to see and in, interact with people as people.
0: Right. So interesting to hear that because when we had David in, who comes from the other side of the political pers- – comes from the, another political perspective than than E.J. and he's, he's a conservative, E.J. E. Is, is a liberal – says the same thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe we're actually
1: coming in on a bipartisan solution. Well, or at least a bipartisan direction, yeah. or at least the idea of this is what has to happen. However it happens, we have to get past the idea of seeing folks in the other party as enemies.
0: Right, but it's fighting huge forces huge in, forces. in terms of social media and the, the whole current media environment and how it started, silos, silos people and then political parties are having the the same sort of effect uh, but it is something that you know you could think of at the community level just join something work with people in the community that don't agree with you and and that they're both arguing
1: but... yeah right and and how you know again these so these huge social forces of social media and um, finding whatever you want on on a computer whenever you want it and um, all these kind of uh, non-physical forms of interaction, Absolutely are undermining the, the, the former mechanisms by which we as a society connected to each other.
0: Yes, and so, so you, speaking nostalgically, we need to go back to where we were. Well, That's or, the or, problem with nostalgia, of course, yeah. <laughs> is that we're not going back to
1: right. where we but I, I think I, what
0: both he and Fromm are arguing is that, you know, there are things within our civil society that need to get done that we need to do that will put us into contact with other with other people. And and so we don't have to be so intentional about it. So uh, people that are not on campus today and won't have the opportunity to see. Uh, to see E.J. when he speaks later this afternoon. Is there a way to, to watch his talk online? Yeah, it'll,
1: it'll be online.
0: The link to the video of his talk will be in the show notes.
1: Absolutely, but that doesn't mean you should not go to our webpage. You right, should be absolutely. doing that
0: anyway. Yeah. Regularly. Alright. <laughs> Enough self-promotion <laughs> from uh, from uh, the McCorney Institute for Democracy. I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Chris Beam.
1: This is Democracy Works. Thanks for listening.
2: Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State. Our hosts are Michael Berkman, Chris Beam, and me, Jenna Spinelli. Andy Grant is our engineer, and Mark Stitzer is our editor. Additional support comes from Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For detailed show notes and discussion questions for each episode, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please consider rating or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.